Hi, this is Dave Isay, founder of StoryCorps. Support for our podcast and the following message comes from Morgan Stanley, a proud sponsor of StoryCorps. Morgan Stanley is committed to giving back and to fostering meaningful dialogue among people and communities. MorganStanley.com. It's the StoryCorps podcast from NPR. I'm Camila Kashani. In this episode, we're headed to outer space. Lots of kids look up at the sky and imagine what it might be like to travel beyond Earth's atmosphere. And we'll hear about three who got a chance to find out, either by going to space themselves or helping those who did. We're going to start with physicist Ronald E. McNair, the second Black astronaut to enter space. His brother Carl told a friend at StoryCorps that Ron always showed the courage he would need for a voyage like that, starting with when he was a young boy growing up in South Carolina. When he was nine years old, Ron, without my parents or myself knowing his whereabouts, decided to take a mile walk from our home down to the library, which was, of course, public library, but not so public for black folks okay. when you're talking about 1959. So as he was walking in there, all these folks were staring at him because they were white folk only, and they were looking at him and saying, well, you know, who is this Negro? <laughs> so he politely positioned himself in line to check out his books. Well, this old librarian, she says, this library is not for coloreds. He said, well, I would like to check out these books. She says, young man, if you don't leave this library right now, I'm going to call the police. So he just propped himself up on the counter <laughs> and sat there and said, I'll wait. So she called the police and subsequently called my mother. Police came down, two burly guys come in and say, well, where's the disturbance? And she pointed to this little nine-year-old boy sitting up on the counter. He says, man, what's the problem? <laughs> so my mother, in the meanwhile, she was called. She comes down there praying the whole way there. Lord, Jesus, please don't let them put my child in jail. And my mother asked the librarian, what's the problem? Well, he wanted to check out the books. And you know your son shouldn't be down here. And the police officer said, you know, why don't you just give the kid the books? And my mother said, he'll take good care of them. And reluctantly, the librarian gave Ron the books. And my mother said, what do you say? He said, thank you, (laughs) (laughs) ma'am. Later on, as youngsters, a show came on TV called Star Trek. Now, Star Trek showed the future where there were black folk and white folk working together and I looked at it as science fiction because that wasn't going to happen, really. But Ronald saw it as science possibility. Mm -hmm. You know, he came up during a time when there was Neil Armstrong and all of those guys. So how was a a colored boy from South Carolina wearing glasses, never flew a plane, how was he going to become an astronaut? But Ron was the one who didn't accept societal norms as being his norm. I mean, that was for other people. And... uh, he got to be aboard his own Starship Enterprise. That's Carl McNair, brother of astronaut Ronald McNair. Ronald died on January 28, 1986, when NASA's space shuttle Challenger exploded, 73 seconds after takeoff, killing all seven crew members aboard. The library that Carl talked about in his conversation was dedicated to his brother in 2011. Our next story also starts with a young boy who had big dreams. 
1969, Apollo 11 was on its way to the moon, carrying Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Michael Collins. Back on Earth, 10-year-old Greg Force had a front-row seat. Greg's father, Charles, worked on the Apollo missions, and his family lived on Guam, home to a massive antenna that connected the astronauts to mission control. Greg came to StoryCorps in 2019 with his daughter, Abby, to remember the little-known role that he played in the success of that historic mission. I can remember where I was when Neil Armstrong stepped on the moon. I was 10 years old. We were going to the grocery store, and we were about to get out of the car, so we sat there and listened to it. I remember looking up and thinking that there are actually people up there on that moon right now. What did you think about Pop Pop working at NASA? I loved it. I looked up to him a huge amount. Not only was it a prestigious job, but he was very good at it. In my dad's office out at the tracking station, he had a little box that sat on the desk, always playing. The uh, magnitude of mid-course correction. And all four of us boys, we'd go up there and sit and listen. Looks like about uh, one seven. And it was the live uh, communications between astronauts and mission control. That sounds good to us. So that evening, Apollo 11 was returning from the moon. We were at home getting close to my bedtime when my dad called said that a bearing had broken in the big, huge dish antenna they used to track the spaceship so they couldn't communicate with the capsule as they were coming back in. His idea was to pack grease around the bearing, but the problem was the access hole to the bearing was small, and what he wanted to do was see if my arm would fit through that hole. So he took me out there, and we climbed up on the antenna. You had to go up these big access ladders, so I would take a big handful of grease. You know, you squish it, it comes out between your fingers. And I stuck them down in there and packed them the best I could. Me being able to climb up there and help was kind of like I was part of the crew there just doing the job that needed to be done. And then the next day, some of our friends heard a news report about 10-year-old boys saved the day. I mean, I think it's pretty dang important. My dad helped with Apollo 11. <laughs> I look up to you and Pop-Pop for it. Now that I look back on it, I'm very proud, not especially anything amazing that I did, but that I happened to be in the right place at the right time. I'm also proud that my dad trusts me enough to, to do it. Greg Force with his daughter, Abby Force, at StoryCorps in Greenville, South Carolina. Greg's father, Charles Force, died in 2007 after almost 30 years of working for NASA. Next, we'll hear the story of one woman who never gave up on her dream of reaching space and just this year took the trip of a lifetime. More on that story after a quick break. Stay with us.
Hi, I'm Dave Isay, founder of StoryCorps. This message comes from NPR sponsor Subaru, celebrating their 14th annual Subaru Share the Love event now through January 3rd. For every new Subaru purchased or leased during the event, Subaru will donate $250 to your choice of charities like the ASPCA, Make-A-Wish, Meals on Wheels, or the National Park Foundation. To learn more, go to Subaru.com share. Subaru, more than a car company. Welcome back. Lastly, we meet 82-year-old Wally Funk. When Wally was a kid, she jumped off the roof of her barn while wearing a Superman cape. She was trying to fly. When she got older, she became a pilot and a flight instructor. But her dream was to become an astronaut. In 1961, she was among a group of female pilots, testing whether or not women were fit for space travel. They were known as the Mercury 13. They passed a lot of the same tests as the men but never got to go to space. But Wally Funk kept trying. At StoryCorps, she spoke to her flight student, Mary Holsenbeck. I get a call, said, do you want to be an astronaut? I said, oh my gosh, yes. And he said, be here on Monday to take these tests. I had needles stuck in every part of my body, tubes running up my bottom. So I went along with it. It didn't bother me. And then they said, we want you to come with a swimsuit. You're going to go into the isolation tank. Well, I didn't know what that was. The lights come down. They said, try not to move. Well, I didn't have a whole lot to think about. I'm 20, had $10 in my pocket. And then finally they said, Wally, you were outstanding. You stayed in 10 hours and 35 minutes. You did the best of the guys that we've had and of the girls. So, Wally, you went through all of these tests only to find out that the program had been shut down. Affirmative. When we got the telegram, that was it. And I never heard anything more. So I went on about my own business. I'm not going to sit back and pine over anything. I applied to NASA four times. And finally they said, Wally, you know, we're sorry, but you don't have an engineering degree. I said, well, I'll get one. So I never let anything stop me. I know that my body and my mind can take anything that any space outfit wants to give me. A high-altitude chamber test, which is fine. A centrifuge test, which I know I can do five and six Gs. These things are, are, are easy for me. I know that when it's your time to go up, I'm going to be right there cheering you on. You are probably the most fearless person I've ever known in my life. <laughs> but I don't think you truly realize that you have been not only my hero, but my mentor. I went through a very nasty divorce, and you made a phone call at the right time one afternoon that saved my life. You said, Mary, let's go flying. I'd say, Wally, I can't afford to go flying. You said, I didn't ask you that. Meet me at the airport. And taking me flying, you would pick out a cloud, and you'd say, Mary, you see that cloud up there? I said, yes, ma'am. You said, point the nose of this airplane toward that cloud and just fly to it. And it was the most freeing feeling. I felt like I was in charge of something when I was in that airplane. And that helped me to put myself back in charge of my own life. So, yeah, you fix the problem. Every night at 10 o'clock, you and I will call each other and we discuss our day, what went well, what didn't go well. And we call it our 10 o'clock flight. <laughs> so we go up into the clouds together because, Wally, you've always told me when you have problems, go to the clouds. That was Mary Holsenbeck with Wally Funk. 
at StoryCorps in Dallas back in 2017. Wally never did give up, and at the age of 82, she joined the crew of Blue Origin's New Shepard rocket in July of this year. And remember how Mary said she'd be right there cheering Wally on? Well, she was watching from the tarmac when Wally's dream came true. I had a chance to talk with Mary about what that felt like. The excitement was just indescribable. It was almost like we were all going on that journey with the astronauts. And suddenly, it was like the Earth exploded. When that rocket took off, I have never seen a fireball like that. It was incredible. It was amazing. And yet there was an element of apprehension. What was giving you that feeling? I mean, Blue Origin had launched, I think, 15 times before successfully. But this was the first time that they took humans. We knew it would be okay, and yet you have that sense of, what if this went wrong? I could lose her. It would be like losing a family member. I stood there looking up into the heavens and just praying for the whole crew. And then the next thing you know, we see the parachutes deploy, but it was just moments before they were on the ground. And Wally came out in typical Wally style with her arms out like, woohoo, I did it. And let me tell you, when I saw that, my heart was so full of pride and joy. Do you remember the first thing that Wally said to you when she landed? She said, honey, that's the most incredible thing I've ever done. You know, Wally's 82 years old. She's the oldest woman to have reached space. How do you think that Wally feels about that? I don't really think she gives a lot of credence to that because Wally always tells everybody she's 45. (laughs) In her mind, she's 45 years old. She believes it. She lives it. Can you talk to me a little bit more about what you think Wally's trip into space is going to mean for other young girls that want to be astronauts? I think that she is the new Amelia Earhart. When people think about women in space, they're going to think about Wally Funk. That's all for this episode of the StoryCorps podcast. It was produced by Annie Russell and edited by Jasmine Morris. Our technical director is Jarrett Floyd, who also composed our theme song. Our fact checker is Natsumi Ajisaka. Special thanks to Michael Garofalo, Elaine Davenport, Mia Warren, Alita Cooper, John White, and Cecil Davis-Vasquez. To see what music we use in the episode, go to storycore.org, where you can also check out original artwork created for this season by Lynn Lucien. For the StoryCorps podcast, I'm Camila Kashani. Catch you next week. This podcast is brought to you by supporters of StoryCorps, an independently funded nonprofit organization, and is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people.